0: Having established his protein style while crafting love letters to giant monsters and things which go bump in the night. With Crimson Peak, Del Toro turns his interest to classic Hammer horror films while drawing further inspiration for the likes of House on Haunted Hill and The Shining to craft a gothic love story hidden under the guise of a ghost story. Released to middling fanfare, the film remains, much like his early films like Kronos, something of an undiscussed entry in his filmography. Until now. I'm Oed I'm Kim and you listen to movies and tea. Let's take it to the booth. <laughs> to Movies in Tea, and we are almost at the end of our re evaluation of the Del Toro filmography. And while it's certainly been a fun ride, we've had a of our own personal highlights of the series. Now, for myself at least, is getting into some sort of some of the more uncharted waters of the filmography. Starting off, of course, with Crimson Peak, the 2005 gothic romance film. This is a film which it's still in that same sort of turbulent sort of period of production, sort of hell that Del Toro was in when he was making Crimson Peak. He was sort of going back and forth of like, whether he was going to direct The Hobbit, he was still trying to get in The Mantis and Madness, sort of greenlit and just nothing was really going through. And in the end, Crimson Peak is sort of what came out this sort of maelstrom of production frustration, really. The film itself, it was something of a box office disappointment, only grossing $74 million worldwide, against a budget of $55 million. And it's sort of, in many ways, marked a real sort of change in pace for Del Toro was here. It was a film which sort of, he seemed to be trying to do something something new i mean this is certainly his first period piece um as the film itself is set in 1887 uh, starting in buffalo new york and then moving across to these ro- <laughs> rain sh- well, these rain soaked shores of england but i mean kim how do you sort of find crimson peak i mean this is obviously a, a a costume drama it's a, a gothic romance it's as i say it's something completely different from del toro compared to what we've obviously seen in his previous films
1: for this one i think the tables are turning now in 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 the in our filmography of del toro mostly because at this point we're heading into films where like we're, we're already in the films where i've seen at least once these films yeah, And Crimson Peak, I remember a lot because I saw it at the theater and it wasn't such a great theater experience, just the quality of it, I mean. But the movie itself was one that I, I remembered, I appreciated it a lot more than the, the, the doofus on top that was making fun and making all kinds of weird noise. So it was like, I think that the deal is that watching it a second time was where I had, I started having some issues with it. Uh, because a lot of things that I I appreciated the first time, I felt like when I go a little deeper, it wasn't, it didn't have that depth that the previous films had. And it's sad because this is really up my alley and it's, it's you know, it's a gothic romance, which I love. Um, I'm gonna talk about, you know, further viewing later uh, because there's another one that I really do like, uh, period piece. And then I think one of the biggest challenges for this film when it came out and why it grows so low was that everybody's, Expectations was that it was primarily a horror film and secondly a gothic romance. But it turns out that Del Toro, when people were saying that, I remember reading something that he clarified that this was supposed to be a gothic romance and not a horror film. So I think that's where most of the issues really came for Crimson Peak. Like, I still think, like, there's a lot of qualities of this that I do like. Like, in the moments of horror, and just the ghost element of it, it's still really good. The slow parts that feel very redundant and very, like, when we're not being psychological or whatnot is, it's really just the story of these two people, you know? Um, uh, Edith, played by Mia Wazakowska and uh, Thomas Sharp, played by Tom Hiddleston. I think that it wasn't their, it wasn't, like, their issue as in, like, they didn't do a good job playing the characters, it was just the characters themselves were like, the the story and the romance was kind of, like... When I watched it a second time, I didn't really like it as much.
0: Okay. I'm glad that you were able to pronounce her, her setting, because I'm looking at it thinking, how the hell am I supposed to pronounce that? There's, like, a million syllables in there. Um, but but certainly Mia is in your She's something of a, a waif, shall we say? She's this... From the start, I mean, this introduces the fact that uh, she lost her mother, and in at this, around the same time, she started seeing visions of ghosts which warn her there to be aware of Crimson Peak. Now, years later, she's all grown up, and her father's approached, along with several other investors in in Boston, um, by this English baronet here, yeah, played by Tom Hudson, who's trying to raise capital for his clay mining device, and at the same time, they want nothing to do with him. They just reject his his proposals outright. And you think uh, he's already sort of like uh, go back to, to England. But he's at the same time, he's sort of sparked this sort of early sort of stages of a romance with uh, Mia's character. From the right from the start, there's this little bit of intrigue as to what's going on there because he's kind of a mysterious character. And I mean, he's accompanied by his psychotic sister. Here, played by Jessica Chastain, um, she plays Lucille, and you know there's something up with the with this pair, but you're not sure exactly what their intentions are. So, when when Edith's father is uh, sort of brutally murdered, um, it sort of sets in motion this whole plot as she suddenly finds herself drawn in drawn into the mystery of her uh, Crimson Peak and what the true intentions of these uh, siblings are and I think it's here where the problems sort of fly. First of all we you know I was really enjoyed it once when we are shown Boston because I think 18th century Boston is something I haven't seen before and, and I was really into the whole setup. I thought that was really great. However when we get over to England it's you know it's just traditional sort of costume drama fair and I mean I'm being a Brit, I mean, this is all we seem to churn out is just these costume dramas and we churn out these adaptations, Bronte and Austin and, you know, this seems to be the only thing we we seem to be capable of doing these days in the British film industry, so from that perspective, it just holds no interest to in myself, and it's kind of the reason I couldn't get into Penny Dreadful just this whole sort of costume drama, said it does absolutely nothing for me and while um, our friends over in, in the States, and I don't know perhaps it's the same for you guys over in, in Canada, where you get all excited about Downton abbey and i mean Downton abbey over here is a program for the older generation it's not this hip young broadcasting show uh over here we do, no uh no sort of a uh, young people sort of watch it like it's uh like like they would with like game of thrones or anything so okay. the whole sort of uh setup i mean as i said just you're know, great another england set costume drama it, it does nothing for me but the main sort of issue I have here is the fact that the film can never seem to figure out what it wants to be. Yeah. It's sort of like we're introduced with ghosts, it's like, oh we're having a ghost story and then we have this whole love story and it's like, okay, we're having a, a love story and being a Del Toro movie and the imagery he's choosing to throw here, it's you know, it's it's a really it's a gothic love story. I mean that's something interesting. And then we have all these other elements being thrown in. And it's like just pick a side of the road you want to be on here. I it was just frustrating constantly that I would get into one sort of genre and then del Toro was like no i want to t- I want to try something else and it was sort of like this constant switching of styles it just had no sort of flair no sort of sense to it and it just become this became this like overly frustrating affair
1: I get where you're coming from, but I think that if it's anything we've learned from this whole um del Toro filmography and with like only one more film left and obviously that's going to be his oscar-winning film so we're looking at all these films right now and there's something very unique about del toro not only um is how he films it and you know how beautiful and visually stunning and um is, is also the fact that he likes to tell stories with a lot of tangents and a lot of different you know and he always mixes genres together and stuff like that and I'm okay with that. And I think that the story is okay um, in that sense that it really doesn't... It, you're right. I see where you're coming from where, like, he that can't really decide what it wants to be. And it never stays in that one phase for long enough for you to kind of, like, connect with. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's one of the main problems is that it's kind of really, really, like, just jumping around. And it's really... I think that the most outstanding part of this film is how things are done. And if you can be okay with, I don't know, uh, the sum of the good things being better than, you know, making it, the whole thing being good, I guess. Because there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of layers here. Um, As we're talking about this, I'm kind of like noticing a bit more where, you know, they start off a little bit in that mystery thing. And then we have like another... um, Like, it's like a lot of questions where, you know, in in New York, York, in Boston, it was like, how did the father die? You know, who murdered him? We never really know that until really later on. And then, you know, we go on and then we're like, okay, well, there's this love story. Does he really love her? And then there's like that whole sibling thing. Well, the Sharps, the brother and sister, who are they, you know? And why do they live in... Uh, a house which has a broken roof and leaves falling through it. You know, like, <laughs> what is the mystery of this, um, this mansion, you know? Uh, why, are, you know, and then, and then there's all this, like, very, very deep imagery and this these different genres that come together. And it's just, you know, questions after questions um, of things that are built up. And I can appreciate what he's trying to do here, but I think that the main issue is really that no part gets taken care of long enough, you know? Like, I'm going to take, like, say, Devil's Backbone, uh, because that's the most comparable at this point, is that it's also a, love, uh, no, it's also a ghost story mixed with kind of something else.
0: Yeah. And
1: in that one, we only have, you know, two, you know, sort of genres of story. Like, there are a few tangents, you know, there's a bit of love, and there's a bit of, like, revenge, and there's a bit of, like, greed, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, mixed into it. But we actually get to, you know, understand these characters a little bit more. Um, and we actually get to really see how these relationships are. And, you know, there's like kind of this depth to just, you know, oh, well, what is what is going on here? and What is going on there? But I, you know, like, I think that Devil's Backbone really works because it's still really focused on, you know, two stories. And here it's like, It's like kind of like the thriller that I hate is those thrillers, which is like, oh, I'm going to do all these like, you know, um, uh, smokes and screens. Is that what you call it? And then suddenly, all of a sudden, by the end, it's like, oh, the twist unravels itself. And there's all these twisted things that happen and, you know, disturbing resolutions. And you're just like. You know, I hate the fact that some movies are like that, where it's like suddenly the the part where you finally get the twist is the part that is meant for you to be really excited, but the whole movie before that didn't really make you excited.
0: Yeah, I understand what what you're saying, and it's it's a shame really because obviously when we look at uh, look at Mia's performance here, and, and certainly. Um, Tom Hiddleston's performance as well. They have very good on-screen chemistry, which I think certainly helps it. But at the same time, she, she really oversells the the sickness that is sort of overcoming her as, when she goes to the crimson goes to Crimson Peak. And I love the setup for Crimson Peak. I think it's yeah. an absolutely stunning yeah. set. Um, it's perhaps cheapened slightly by the CGI, which turns the snow red because of the clay underneath. Mm. Um, which was which was real shamefully really, because it was sort of like you're painting this beautiful picture and then you're kind of like throwing this sort of slapdash finish on it by with your with your snow effects and it's sort of like the snow itself is like one of the one of the key visual elements to it. I mean, there's nothing more effective than blood on snow, and certainly if you've got red clay underneath that's coming up and causing the snow to turn red and give it this sort of like give the uh the location its name, this this turning the peak crimson. It's like why did you sheep out the CGI? It's sort of like was there no way that you could you could do this to make it seem seem a little better because it just it just really frustrated me and especially when there's such time and care put into the interior of, of the mansion and as you said there's a hot bloody great big hole in the roof which creates this spotlight effect in the center which you've got yeah. snow like gently falling down and it just looks absolutely stunning yeah and as we go through it and we discover all of these like hidden rooms in within mm-hmm. within its walls yeah it sort of, lo- sort of really adds to these characters of uh of Lucille and thomas um
1: and and but. I think that, I think, I think just to cut you off, it's like, yeah. not only are the two of them such, you know, mysterious characters, I think what really brings it to life is that, I think that what Boston didn't have in that setting was the fact that Crimson Peak and, you know, that whole mansion and that beautiful, beautiful, like, like visually it's so nice, but at the same time it has so much character also. Like, there's so much to discover inside the house. And, and as we go further in the story, I don't know if this is considered a spoiler or not, but we realize that there's something that connects these two to the house. There's something about, you know, this mansion that they're living in that they're trying to do. And, you know, that's kind of like their ulterior motive that I don't think we've we actually got, like, a really clear image as to why they're doing these things.
0: Um, I think it if it is sort of in the big reveal at the end, it sort of clarifies what their intentions are. I think I'm just going to warn that you know there are going to be be spoilers on this point because I think it's going to be a little difficult to sort of dive in further without revealing too much. But we'll try and cut the spoilers to a minimum. Um, certainly, when it comes to this plot that uh, Lucille and Thomas have been running, because we find from as as the mystery sort of unravels here is um the fact that this isn't t- that me that edith isn't the first sort of victim of their plot the fact that uh they've got this scheme where thomas basically marries wealthy women and uh they slowly poison them so that they can steal their money and i think this is, again this is the main one of the big issues i have is the fact that when we look at uh performance here and that when she's supposed to be getting weaker by by it when she's at uh, crimson peak she just sort of like really goes full force and you just f- feel that she's going to keel over at any moment and it's very distracting to watch someone being all pale and sickly for a good hour of, of the film's runtime and it's sort of like oh, just have a sandwich or something just <laughs> stop drinking tea <laughs> clearly <laughs> you were fine until you started drinking tea tea is not something that is clearly uh, agreeing with yourself um so that was a little distracting and just the the relationship between her character and and Thomas, the fact that at he's like actively pursues her, and then as soon as they get married, it goes Pete, He becomes very disinterested and very sort of cold to her. Yeah, and it's sort of like he, 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 You feel that he's holding back Hildenson's performance. You want him to almost become something of a brute. Uh, to really sort of sell this character but instead he just like I don't know it's like he's covering for something else that oh well maybe he's like a closet homosexual or something and that, <laughs> that's the reason for this this lack of interest so you you draw all these other comparisons mm-hmm. of like why he's not, not interested in this, this clearly very attractive girl who is interested in him despite the fact that he's continuously so Kota she sort of really sort of clings to this idea of what they had before um mm-hmm.
1: And, and you know, the thing is, you know, the turning point is that, you know, you, we have all these things and then suddenly we have, you know, that moment when they leave and they can't come back to Crimson Peak. And then at that moment, we really see that, you know, there is something between them and he, he, he does want to be more intimate with her. And then it brings on that whole question of, you know, giving the, the like, why, why is he so distant at home, but not so much when he's away? And obviously, I think he, here, I think is, is something that I don't think at this point we've actually had any, like, active sexual scenes in any del Toro films. We've nope. seen, like, you know, the beginning and ending of things, right? But never, like, uh, a full-on scene. And here we really get that, that scene that we get. And I think that it's it's kind of sad that right now, I think, like, when I watch that scene, I, you know, I think it's, it's done really well. But... At the same time, like, I don't think that Mia Wasikowska, like, I don't think she ever will be able to be as amazing and as like such a powerful scene as like when she did that whole like, she had the, I don't know, I don't want to say it. It's like a scene in Stoker that I watched. And that was a scene that like changed me like I thought it was so amazing. I don't know. Have, have you seen Stoker?
0: I've seen Stoker. I'm just trying to recall the scene that you're you're talking on about. I mean,
1: there were <laughs> I think two very powerful scenes. I can't remember if the second one was just like I don't know if that one was. I don't know right now. But there's one that was like you know I think it was by the piano. Um, yeah. and she has this like it's like this orgasmic scene that she has, and I just I just think it's like it was so powerful that. Now I feel like there's nothing that can really compare to that sort of passion she has. And and I think that, you know, the deal with it is that Edith and Thomas, while their relationship was kind of like, you know, a big developing point in the story. Yeah. There always seems to be something missing. Like that spark that really makes them someone, like a couple that you're really like, you know, fighting for you know either one or the other and I think through the whole thing the only one you really really kind of bond with is Edith's character because like the Edith character because she is this person where gets sucked in this situation and you realize there's so much going on you know she starts seeing these spirits again and I think those are fantastically done as well those uh, the scenes with like the, the, the spirits and ghosts and stuff and then and then like it's just it's just like she gets she, it's like so innocent right she gets thrown into these things and then it's like what is the resolution behind all this like why is she chosen to be there and obviously you know we we get the answer at the end you know that this is a scheme but it's just it's just crazy how she fell down like the top floor of the building and she didn't die <laughs> Uh, yeah, the,
0: the, I can the, guarantee
1: you. If you fall into a pile of leaves from that height, you would still get hurt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a number of uh, certainly a number of issues throughout. I mean, the the intimacy scene, obviously between uh, Edith and and Thomas. I mean, whenever you have sex scenes in costume dramas, it's all it's always very awkward and. These bodice-ripping se- so sequences, nobody ever seems to be having any fun. So it's very hard whenever you have a 16 turn up in a costume drama, and here it's very much the same. It's if it, it was intended to be hotter than it was, but I think it kind of made me glad that Del Toro went with the casting he, he went with, because, I mean, originally his casting choices for this was Emma Watson and Benedict Cumberbatch, whose name is impossible to say without putting some gravitas behind it. And I think if I had to watch her Watson do what that scene, I would have, ah, uh, i would have gonna burn my eyes out because she's <laughs> grating at the best of times. So to see her, see her, much like Kira Knightley try and do anything vaguely erotic. I can't think of anything bloody worse. So, but yeah, I mean, it's as you said before. I mean, Del Toro, this is Del Toro's first attempt at doing a scene of intimacy. We normally see the the post sort of sequence the um or the sort of build-up but we never see him ever sort of like attempt to shoot these sort of sequence scenes so it's definitely trying to branch out i mean certainly even with the in terms of the theme he's definitely trying new things here with this film whether they're successful or not i think he's sort of very much in the taste of the viewer um but yeah, I think I think towards that, that sort of final reel, everything sort of gets a bit stupid. Uh, not only have you got her falling off the balcony and surviving, you've got the whole White Knight sort of angle with Tom Hiddleston's character. Um, sorry, um, the whole Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, with Charlie Hunnam who plays the Doctor, who's sort of like investigating the the brother and sister, because it's, it's sort of hinted on early on that uh, with Edith's father, he gets sort of like a background check done on. On Thomas and he clearly discovers something because he pays off uh, Thomas so he has nothing to do with her, with his daughter and so when it comes to Charlie Hunnam's character he sort of picks up that thread and carries out his own investigation it's sort of like, he felt very unnecessary it's all like, why do we need this White Knight character to save Edith? Can't she save herself? And for all the use that he basically is when he does Drag himself over to Crimson Peak. It's sort of like it seems like even more of a sort of waste of time. His inclusion in the film, only to sort of like really sort of set in motion the era mystery behind like Thomas and Lucille. But again, Edith finds all this out for herself for her own detection work. It's no, he sort of really plays no sort of like major point in like any part of the mystery, um, and just made him feel like sort of generally very unneeded. You know,
1: like the, the, thats the thing—is Charlie Hunnam's character was, you know, was so underused. I think that's the proper way to use it. Is that like he wasn't written in well enough? Maybe it was like a post-editing decision that maybe like certain scenes were taken out or something. I feel like maybe that—that's what happened. And then now the now it turns out like he <laughs> didn't have as much as as weight as he was supposed to have because if, in the beginning, you know, there was like this sort of hint of. You know, like, there, there's, you know, he gets a little bit more weight, and you kind of see where he's coming from, and you get to see, like, why he's so involved in all this. Yeah. And then, you know, it didn't make sense that, you know, after after she left, he'd be all like, oh, now I have to hunt all this down and figure <laughs> out what happened. and And then, like, oh, chase after this married woman. I don't know. And then he arrives, and then, you know, the, the scene where he, like, bursts in is kind of like three seconds and then he kind of like gets hurt <laughs> gets attacked um because he's real dumb also <laughs> so
0: <laughs> he's essentially what scatman Crothers is in the shining he looks like he's gonna have some significance to plot but as soon as he attempts to uh to form some, re- some form of rescue here he's just wiped out straight away so
1: yeah so you know like I think that like well <laughs> As we're talking about this, I just I just find it really crazy is that the film really, the ending, the last third of the film is when we really get to see Jessica Chastain's character really come out, you know? And she does a brilliant performance. Like, she does a fantastic, fantastic performance here. It's just that she never also has that weight, you know? We see all these little scenes of her here and there. She kind of, like wanders through a scene um in the background sometimes and mysteriously you'll see her go through another scene and go through another room and do this and that but she's never there for a really long time and i guess that's to keep her mystery but then you know at the end she just like you know spoiler alert she goes like bat shit crazy yeah so <laughs> that was kind of intense um i think that that was i think that that was the most uh, the second time watching it, that was definitely what like one of the biggest hooks because obviously the other parts I, I still remembered a lot of and it wasn't you know I didn't feel things lived up as much as just watching Jessica Chastain's character in the last, you know in the last act really like go out of control.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you feel that Thomas gets off too easy as a result of of Lucille basically being batshit crazy at the end of this film? Um, I feel that Thomas was let off way too easy. I Cameron, think that,
1: you know, he, he, he's kind of like, it's not that he's let off easy. It's just the fact that it's kind of like it was expected to happen that that she was going, that, you know, like, it's always like that. Someone with, like, extreme evil, which is kind of like Jessica Chastain's character. Yeah. She gets into this, you know, she, go, she goes crazy and she does something she regrets because, she loses herself a little she loses her mind a little and does he get off easy well is he really an evil character i just feel like he's a really manipulated character like he's been manipulated by his sister the whole time but he's same... really evil
0: i would say so i mean he, this isn't the first time that they pulled this scheme he's been a willing accomplice we find out through so through the sort of detective uh, Legwork here. Yeah. We find out he's been a, he's been a willing accomplice in this scheme multiple times before. He's involved in an incestuous relationship with his sister, and it's only <laughs> because that because of this uh you know this period this costume drama version of a manic pixie dream girl in I me mean, which turns up that oh wait a minute i've decided that you know what, i am capable of sleeping with other women than my sister and uh you know i'm i'm kind of down with this and you know it's really only serves to feel make lucille look crazy because they basically shift everything onto her character yeah exactly so it's sort of like oh we can have her go completely nuts and then we're just like have oh it being be her fault and then we can redeem Thomas and white ghost him and it's sort of like uh, just no there was just no redemption to the character it's sort of like he's, ev- he's got these evil connotations to his character mm-hmm. and it's because, like we'll, yeah, we'll let because him he, off
1: yeah because he didn't you know like it's not like he chose to stop any of these things right like any any of the schemes that his sister had he could have easily stopped because they're poisoning people slowly you know, he could have swapped up the tea or something, spilled it. I don't know. Do something. But he didn't. And I, I understand what you're saying. Like, he did get off easy. He did get off easy, um, he did get off easy uh, in that sense, obviously. But but I think that that was the thing, was that maybe it was like, maybe it was like a, a background decision where they were like, oh, you know, Tom Hiddleston, you've done a really good job. Your role's been really complete as Thomas Sharp. We've had you in a lot of scenes. But, you know, now the spotlight has to turn to Jessica Chastain. She's super popular now. She's super hit now. You know, we got to give her some scenes to show off more of her, more angles of her acting skills.
0: Okay. Um, I would <laughs> say that Tailson was already like the more established talent. I mean, he was low key for a start. And I mean, he carries a lot across that, a lot of that. I low know, key but I mean, charm, like, so.
1: but then, I mean, he is the main character in the whole thing. So he was in like, you know. of the scene, I would say, you know? Whereas, like, Jessica Chastain really gets a, you know, not a whole lot of appearances. Um, So her character was pretty underused, also. Um, But I I also get, like, the effect of it was that she was supposed to have that mystery behind her, where she was kind of, like, suspicious and dark in the background. Something's not right about her. And, you know, I mean, those feelings definitely work out really well
0: further watching i mean what do you pair with this film um exactly what what sort of stands out as being a good uh sort of pairing for uh i, I went
1: for the most straightforward film and that was jane Eyre, um 2011's jane Eyre, also with mia wasikowska and uh opposite michael fassbender okay Yeah, and, uh, like, Jane Eyre, um, the 2011 one, I've never watched any other version, so I don't know if there is, is, is really nice. Like, you get a lot of, you know, like, the feeling of watching, like, this one, um, but in a much more complete way, because obviously Jane Eyre is already, like, a really established story, so there, the execution of that one also is there, where there's, like, a little bit of, you know, mystery, a little bit of creepiness, um, so, yeah, I know. There's a lot of, like, the feeling of it is there. Uh, and, and yeah. that That's the only one I think of that could pair with it. Maybe I'll think of something else, but I, I don't know right now. Okay. What would you pair with it?
0: Um, I would pair... Let me see. Well, first off, the one that jumps out to me the most would be Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, seeing Gary Oldman as the title of Vamp. And I think it's... It's a very sort of underrated adaptation, and it's one that's sort of really fallen by the wayside since it's been released. I mean, when when it first came out, I mean, it was just everywhere. Um, they were just got a lot of buzz, and it was sort of had that one-two hit because you had had Branookus Br- Dracula come out, and then shortly after you had Kenneth Branagh's um, adaptation of Frankenstein came out with Robert De Niro as the as Frankenstein's monster. But I think if you like. And peak, i think there's certainly a lot of style um that sort of carries across to uh comes across and francis ford coppola shares a similar visual eye for the for the gothic and i mean yes it's obviously you got ghosts in this one which i, I would say are pretty pointless in crimson peak they never show, serve any purpose apart from to give doug jones a job uh, <laughs>
1: but at the same time you know i mean Obviously, we're in further viewing, so I'm not going to dive too deep into it. I actually think that um, one scene in particular inside, like, the mansion, I thought that that scene was done really well, um, where the ghost is kind of, like, coming out of uh, the floor. Yeah. And that that scene, I tell you, the first time I watched it, it was the most memorable part of Crimson Peak to me when I watched it the first time. And um, I still remember the feeling and, like, that kind of dread I felt when I was watching it. There's a, you know, like, I I think it has a lot to do with, like, Del Toro's just how he angles his cameras and stuff like that. Even, like, you know, when there's, like, the, the, the ghost coming at her and she's in the bathtub or something like that. That there there's, you know, there's a lot of things like that that really work.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly with uh, Coppola's Dracula, I mean, it's... It's certainly got its it got its issues, such as Keanu Reeves attempted to do an English accent, which doesn't work, and certainly something that doesn't perform Crimson Peak, as everyone can pretty much do their accents. Um, although I have heard people criticise Charlie Hunnam's English accent, despite the fact he is English, so go figure. Um, but no, I I think if you that would be the the one that sort of stands out. To myself, as I said before, I'm not a huge fan of costume dramas, so I'm the wrong person to ask if you're looking for further recommendations of Gothic costume dramas. Um, I mean, you could obviously check out the series *Penny Dreadful*. Again, it's sort of tapping into a similar sort of vibe. But no, I think if you uh, if you uh, check out *Banshoke's Dracula*, I think you might uh, find much to enjoy there as well. So, so this brings us to the end of this episode of Movies and Tea. Um, as always, you can find us both on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can also find our blog which is you can also find our complete archive of episodes which is uh, and Um so uh, wherever you happen to be listening to us make sure you hit the subscribe button maybe leave us a review it all helps raise the profile of the show and uh, gets, uh, gets us out there more um, but where are we going for our final episode of the season now
1: yeah we're going in the next one is going to be the 2017 Oscar winning movie uh i believe it was oscar winning yeah, yeah it was like best picture right uh the shape of water
0: um so make sure you join us next time as uh, we'll be discussing the shape of water but uh thank you as always to my co-host kim and uh thank you as always to our listeners and uh wishing you all a very good night